Well, shalom. Seems like some of you need some Hebrew lessons. Shalom. I've been asked to do two things this morning, and that's because you don't know me. I'm going to share my testimony, but my passion is sharing the word because that's where we find the one who we sung about. And let's be honest, a testimony, particularly Jewish testimonies, they go on and on and on and on. So let me tell you mine, and I'll, I'll try to make it brief. My great-great-grandfather is famous. He was a rabbi in a beautiful little German town. And in 1711, when he was studying late one night, he fell asleep. Now, this is the days before iPhones and electricity. And so he was studying with the light of a candle. And as he fell asleep, he knocked over the candle, and the house burned down, and the whole Jewish neighborhood burned and half the town was gone. And that day we left that town and we never came back. We became the wandering Jews, as most of you will be familiar with that phrase. And from 1711 to the year that I was born, every generation was born in a different place. And we searched for a place that we could call home. Well, my father, he in World War II saw his parents and his uncles, his aunties, all picked up by the Nazis. And so we went from a man full of faith, looking for God, to a man, my father, who said, where is God? How can this happen? And if you don't know about the Holocaust, I, I hope that you'll study that one day and contemplate what happened and ask that question that Asaph asks in the Psalms, why, O oh Lord, has this come upon us? My father decided then and there there was no God. And that impacted, obviously, me and, and my siblings because we then grew up with no faith. My father denied all faith, and he said, there cannot be a God. Well, I was five, and I was studying for theology, as most of you do. And I said to my father, no, I think there is a God. And so he turned to me and he said, where is he? I said, well... He's everywhere. He's here. He's, he's, he's everywhere. And my father took a step forward, stomped his feet and said, I just stood on his toes. As a five-year-old, I, I didn't know how to respond since then. I've learned that. But how do you respond to that? You see, if God is dead, then he isn't there. For most Jewish people, that is true. God is absent. He is somewhere there, but he's on holidays. You see, our witnessing to Jewish people is like that. We talk to a people who, what Jeremiah said, are unwilling to hear, unwilling to see. But we have a calling. Well, many years later, I finished high school. I went to Israel, and I went to study with the rabbis. After a couple of months, I thought, look, I'll take a quick break, go to a kibbutz, and you know, see what life is more all about. While I was in the kibbutz, I met this beautiful Australian girl. And she was much prettier than the rabbi. <laughs> and I followed her. Oy. <laughs> she came to Israel and said, did Jesus really walk here? What does that mean? She didn't have a Bible and asked a Jewish girl who was living next door to us for a Bible. 
And she wasn't just given an Old Testament, a Tanakh, as we Jewish people would call that, but a complete Bible with all the new, because somebody had already witnessed to her, but she had no time for God. And so my wife started reading and looked at the landscape and said, he walked here, he preached here. What does that mean to me? And she started witnessing to me. I'm like my people, I'm stubborn. It took me two years before I finally realized that she might be right. I came with her to her church and a sermon was preached on Genesis 22. It's called in Hebrew, the Akeda, the binding. It's the binding of Isaac. I don't know if you're very familiar with the story. I hope you are, because it's what is called a messianic passage. Abraham is taking his son. Now, Abraham is an old man by now. Here's his son in the prime of his life. According to Jewish tradition, he's in his 30s. I was going to say like me, but I'm, I'm much older than that. But he is in the prime of his life. Isaac is an old man, but it is the willingness of Isaac to be bound. And it's the willingness of Abraham to sacrifice. The preacher brought out that there was a greater father who bound his son upon an altar so that you and I can be free. And we sung about him this morning. It spoke to me then and it still speaks to me now. In the Hebrew, it literally says that Abraham killed then the ram and placed it underneath Isaac as a substitute, underneath. And that's where we find the Lord for us. The Lord Jesus comes underneath us to be that replacement for us. It is not my sin that is being judged, but because of his sacrifice, he takes away my guilt, my shame, my punishment. That happened in 1987. About a week later, I was introduced to some Hebrew Christians, Messianic Jews, we call them today, and they said, you should join the ministry. I was a week old in the Lord. What did I know? I knew nothing. But I thought, look, I'll join these people because they know what they're doing. And since then, people have been pouring into me, uh, both Jews and Gentiles, to make sure that I understand what the calling of the Jewish people and the calling of the Gentiles are. Because together we are meant to praise the Lord. Nineteen eighty-nine, I started working for ministry part time. It's some thirty years later that I still do that, and I do that with a passion. Most Jewish people, seventy-five percent of them, never read their Bible. We call them the people of the book, but they don't read the book. They read many books, but you too are the people of the book. But you have one book; it's their book that you've got to share now back with them. That is our calling, and that's your calling, isn't it? It is the one thing that we have in common. And so I've worked with various ministries, and today I'm with Celebrate Messiah. It's a great ministry. Uh, our passion is clearly to bring the gospel back to the Jewish people. Uh, we do that through our newsletter, and if you want to subscribe to it, just join me at the back, and I'll sign you up. I brought a little bit of literature, 
because we particularly deal with messianic prophecies such as Isaiah 53. In Jewish tradition, this is called the forbidden chapter. We never read this. It is never read in synagogue. I shared this story some years ago with a Jewish man. He was traveling, he was Orthodox. And we sat down together and I said, have you ever read this? And he said, no, no, I, I don't want to read it. And I said, look, it's in our Bible. Why don't we just read it? Read it in the Hebrew and I'll, I'll comment on it. And he said, it sure sounds like Jesus, but, but that cannot be. You see, we have a Bible, Old and New Testament, but if I would take away your New Testament, would you be able to find Jesus? Because that's what the apostle said, and that is what you should be able to do. When we read Colossians 1, where we see the, the glorified Lord, shouldn't we be able to share that back to the Jewish people with references back to the Old Testament? Mind you, it's not that old when we look at the New Testament, which is pretty old too. You see, we have a calling to share him who came. But as I said, I am more passionate about sharing the word. And if you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of Psalms. I'm writing a commentary on this book at the moment. And I just want to share a few words from Psalm 8. It's a lovely little psalm. It's a psalm from David. For the choir director on the Githit, a psalm of David. Some of your translations will have that as the superscript, but it's, it's not superscript. It's not above the text. It's part of the text. The headings in the book of Psalms are actually not what the editor wrote, but part of scripture. David wrote this psalm and then handed it over to the musical director, the worship leader. And just as we, I certainly enjoyed the music this morning, did you? And it wasn't even for me, it was for the Lord, because we worshipped him. And that's what David is doing here. He's giving this over to them so that we collectively can worship the Lord together. It's on the githet. Ever heard of that instrument? Anybody? Anybody ever seen one? I have yet to see a hand raised on that one. Well, we think, and that's all we do, we ponder, whether this word is related to the word Gath, meaning the city of Gath, one of the Philistine cities. You see, David spent some time there. We see that in 1 Samuel 27. David spent some time there, and he learned some instruments there. You see, they had harps in Babylon that looked quite different from the harps in Egypt. But there might have been a different harp here. And we think it is a, a harp that they used to play with. Uh, the word also is related otherwise to the word for a wine press. But I'm not sure how you can sing or make a musical instrument out of a wine press. So I'm, I'm going to go with a harp from Gath. Is that Okay. And the psalm starts like this. And it's sung in the synagogue still today. Adonai Eloheinu Madir Shimcha Bechol Haaretz Asher Tanahotcha Ashamayim. 
Now for the one or two among you who didn't get that, let me do that in English for you. Because we should understand what we're singing, isn't it? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. Wow. Can you imagine a more beautiful opening to a psalm, to a song that we are asked to sing before the Lord? How majestic is your name? Not mine. My testimony is irrelevant. Your testimony is your testimony. And it is great to share it because that's how you share what Jesus has done in your life. But collectively, it isn't about us. It is about him. So we sing about him. How excellent is your name? We sang about his name this morning. The name in the Old Testament is the name Yahweh. Uh, some translations, if you have an older translation like the American Standard or the King James, it'll say Jehovah. Uh, we normally don't say that name. Uh, we, we say anything else but that name in the Jewish tradition. But the root of that name is Hayah, meaning to be. He is the eternal one who was, who is, and who is to come. It's the name by which he made covenant, agreements that he doesn't break. The Abrahamic covenant, the new covenant, are unconditional covenants. Covenants that he made in Genesis with Abraham. It is God who walked through the sacrificed animal. Nobody else. In the new covenant, it is God who will give us a new heart. It is God who makes and who keeps the covenants. Nobody else. It is this name that we proclaim, the covenant-making and the covenant-keeping God. Uh, there are two words here that I just want to focus on. Majestic or excellent in some translations. It's the word idea, as you probably recognized. And it's related to the revealed glory of God, how he is displayed in his majesty. The second word, hot, hot ha, we sang, is the imposing majesty of God. It is God displaying himself in majesty, in power, in glory over all creation. It is only our unwillingness to see him in creation that stops that. Uh, I worked with a... Uh, I worked on a university campus for many years, and on one of the doors it said, here lives a godless academic. He refused to see. He was a very smart man, PhD, very clever, but he chose not to see. Like my father, who said, I don't want there to be a God. You see, but if we open our eyes, he's... His glory is revealed in the flowers in the field, in the laughter of children, but also in the pain that we share with one another. It is revealed in the Orion belt as we look towards the heavens. Verse 2. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. There is a universality about this, but it's not about that. Even babes will give you praise. Hmm. 
it's kind of funny. You see, we build monuments to ourselves. We build Ephesus and, and great works to say, hey, here am I. I am somebody. But God draws forth praise from the weakest things that we have. It's an amazing thing to contemplate. The Apostle Paul also reflects on these words, that God has chosen the weak vessels of this world to correct the strong. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. These words are quoted also by the Lord Jesus. Matthew 21, 15 to 17. When the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things that had been done, they saw the idea, the, the glorious things that had been done. And the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes? You have prepared praise for yourself. And he left them and he went out to the city of Bethany and he spent the night there. Jesus applied this psalm to himself. Did you see that? What is he saying? You see, in the psalm, this is praise to God. Jesus is saying, this applies to me. Jesus is saying, I am God. I am he. This is a messianic passage that he applies to himself. And it is something that is awesome in that sense. And we ought to pause there, just reflect upon it, that he is the one then who created these things for his beauty, for his strength. As such, we need to be like those children and come with a childlike faith to him and declare his praise. We need to become the weak things of this world. It's not our own strength. It's not our own power, our own monuments that we build, our Ephesus. But it is what he has done. 1 Corinthians 1.27, But God has chosen the foolish things, and that would be me, to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things, that's all of us, to put to shame the things which are mighty. You see, it is not in our strength that we stand here and that we proclaim who he is. It is in his strength, in his might, and in his glory we reveal through our weakness. Because it isn't about us. We all are monument builders, and that's the Tower of Babel. But God came down. He stooped down, it literally says, to look at what they had done. And they thought they'd build a ladder or a tower to heaven. God laughs. You see, we need to do it the other way around. We need to humble before him. Verse 3, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've ordained, what is man that you are? that you take thought of him. In that childlike faith, David says, I looked at the heavens. Uh, if you look tonight, maybe not in Melbourne or in Sydney where I live, it'll be hard, but how many stars could you see? If you go to you know, the inner land of Victoria and it's pitch dark, how many can you see? 
I've been told it's about 5,000. Now, I've not counted it myself. I'm bad at math. I stop after 11 because then I go, I, 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 I get lost. But I, I do know that there are many. I once was in Exmouth in, in far western uh, Australia. It was pitch black. Not, not a single light in 10 kilometers around us. And the stars were amazing. And we read this psalm. The work of your fingers, not even the work of your hands. He, he doesn't take any power to create these things. He just speaks them forth. It is as though they are just finger work for him. And what is man that you take thought of him? What is man that you care for him? The word for man here is not Adam, uh, that would be the normal word, but Enosh, meaning mortal man, the, the one who is dying. And that's compared to the one who is eternal, the eternal one. How awesome is it to just contemplate him and his work? Well, if I could count to 5,000, I would count them. Would I be close to counting the stars in the universe? No. Uh, with this space telescopes, the Hubble and the, the new one. Uh, there are millions of stars out there. That alone should cause us to pause and wonder about the greatness of our God who created all of those things and how awesome he is that he takes thought of us, mere mortals, mere dust in the wind, planetary dust, some academics called us ones. Psalm 144, what is man that you regard him? Or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Yet he thought of us, of you and me. Not only that, he sent his son for you and me. That son that he already proclaimed in this psalm, how awesome. I'll continue in verse 4. And note the shift, and the son of man that you care for him. Yet you've made him a little lower than the angels, and you crown him with glory and majesty. The Hebrew word for man here is not Enosh, but Adam. He's the Ben-Adam. In the book of Ezekiel, it's a common title for Ezekiel himself. But in the book of Daniel and later on in the Psalms, it is a specific title for the Messiah, he is one of us. He came to save us. Daniel 7 would be a good background. It is the Son of Man who is coming in the clouds of glory. It is this one who is coming. In some translations, it'll say a little lower than God or even God's. Uh, the word Elohim is used here, and I'm sure you're familiar with the academic work about this, aren't you? Uh, is it angels or is it gods? Or is it God? What, what is it? Well, the book of Hebrews interprets it for us. Hebrews 2, verses 5 to 7. For he did not subject to the angels the world to come, concerning which it's speaking. But one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you're concerned about him? You've made him a little lower than the angels, and you've crowned him with glory and honor, and you've appointed him over the works of your hand. We know, therefore, that some translations, sadly, when they write God, are going against 
other passages that are clearly revealing that this is about the angels. So think about this for a second. Is Jesus lower than the angels? Anybody here would put their hand up? You see, that's what the text says. And in his humanity, he was. But he wasn't just a man. He was the God-man. And in his divinity, he was always greater because he's the one who created the stars. He's the one who created the angels. And so he was willing to step down to the same level that you and I are, the Son of Man. You remember him. In Hebrews, it says, you crowned him with glory and honor. Those are the words that were ascribed earlier in the psalm to God alone. And God doesn't share his glory. Therefore, this is from God and this is of God and this belongs to God alone. And again, it reflects very strongly that he is God himself. And you appointed him over the works of your hand. What are the works of your hand? Well, the stars that he's created. All things really fall under his domain. The author of, the author of Hebrews had argue, has argued strongly in chapter 1 that he is superior to the angels. Now he's saying, hey, he's underneath him for a while until he returns to his full glory. When he's crowned with glory and majesty, then he is once again over all things. Back in the Garden of Eden, we had some glory, but we lost that. And he is the one who will restore our glory. Verses 6 to 8. You've made him to rule over the works of your hand. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. All things. Was there anything left? All things. And yet he specifies some of the things. It's true that we too will be given authority to reign over some things. Second uh, Timothy 2 verse 12. But it will be always underneath King Messiah. Never next to him. Never above him. But always under him. That's what this teaches us. You see, we lost that in the garden. And we've been rebellious ever since. In Psalm 2, it then urges us to kiss the Son, the S-O-N, not the S-U-N, so that we may be in right relationship with him. That's giving him honor and praise and glory. And the Psalm finishes, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's a repeat, isn't it? Repeats means emphasis. It says to us, stop, ponder. This is what we're about. We're about our Lord, our God, whose majestic name is proclaimed in all the earth. And that's where you and I come in, isn't it? Because that's what we do. Not just on Sunday, but on Monday to our colleagues, to our families, to our staff, to anybody who will listen. And it's what we display in our lives because they read us as an epistle. They read us and our lives. And so if on Monday morning we behave like bad people, they don't see the Lord in us. But it's our calling to do that. 
God has made man, and we are just mortals, but he's brought the Son of Man so that we might be redeemed, and that together we may stand one day proclaiming the beauty of him who gives us strength and grace. Friends, that's our calling today. That's what this psalm teaches us. I don't know about you, but I hope that you will join us as we, I'm sure, going to close in worship. Excellent. You see, that's what this psalm teaches us. Let's bring it back to the worship leader and ask them to lead us. Father, we thank you for David who wrote this beautiful psalm. But how much more do we thank you for the Son of Man who was willing to subject himself to become lower than the angels and yet who is higher than everybody else. He is the Lord, the King of glory, about whom we sung and who will continue to sing. Father, help us to keep our eyes on Jesus who is so revealed in this psalm who quoted this psalm for us, that we may be one who has a childlike faith, that we may recognize and join in worship. Give us grace, Lord, to do that.